This is episode 65 with adventurer, activist, and veteran, Stacey Bear. Welcome to Wild Ideas Worth Living, an adventure podcast presented by REI Co-op, the brand who helps get you outside through gear, classes, and adventures. We talk to experts who have taken a wild idea and made it a reality so you can too. From people who have climbed the tallest peaks, started thriving businesses, and even broken records, some of the wildest ideas can lead to the most rewarding adventures. I'm your host, Shelby Stanger, and I hope you enjoy the show. Stacy Bear was a National Geographic Adventurer of the Year in 2014 and received a Bronze Star for his service in Iraq from 2006 to 2007. He founded Veterans Expeditions and was part of a movie and project he started called Adventure Not War, where he took soldiers back to the places they served in war to experience it from the perspective of someone enjoying the outdoors. He's currently the director of the Sierra Club Outdoors, the national director of programming and operations at the Phoenix, and a brand champion at the North Face. We start this conversation with a kidnapping and go from there. This is one wild conversation. Stacy is six foot seven. He's a big guy with an even bigger personality, which is why he's so sought after as a speaker and a presenter, as well as brand ambassador. So we talk about everything from war to the outdoors, starting a movement, climbing with Alex Honnold, skiing in Iraq, addiction, and so much more. This podcast episode is dedicated to Ann Kerchik a mentor of Stacy's, an executive at the North Face who paved the way for many women and men in the outdoor industry and who was a total badass. This is a really fun, interesting, fast-moving show. I hope you enjoy it. We are in the bowels of the conference center in Denver. At the Outdoor Retailer Show. At the Outdoor Retailer Show, and this is the most depressing <laughs> room I was once kidnapped for about a day. The room was actually nicer than this, where I was held. Hold on a second. You were kidnapped for a day? I was kidnapped for a day in the former Soviet state of Georgia. I was working in Abkhazia, and a group of individuals assumed that I worked for the United Nations, and I was with my friend Ali Makhmanatov, who I worked together with, and I was a close friend when I lived in Abkhazia, and we got stopped and kidnapped because they wanted ransom money and the UN would oftentimes pay ransom money. Mm. But by the afternoon, they realized that we worked for a landmine clearance organization called the Halo Trust. And so before they released us, they got us horrifically drunk so that we wouldn't speak negatively of them and dropped us back off at our cars. So I left the office that morning at around 6.30 or 7, and I got home that night around 7.30 or 8 and just passed out in my bed because I was so horrifically drunk. <laughs> and uh, But yeah, the room that they held us in was nicer than this one wait so that's horrifying that you got kidnapped for the day well it was a weird situation in that it sort of was horrifying but at the same time i was never that worried that anything bad was going to happen because abkhazia where we're living is a very very small breakaway you know it's, it's technically not even a country right and so but it's this very small place and eventually i knew people would figure out who we were and that we didn't work for the un and that was exactly the case right and these guys felt really really bad i mean they didn't have any means towards economic so they were sustainability like nice kidnappers they were really nice kidnappers like the whole thing they were really nice about like everything we had to get like crawl into this trunk and everything like that but what it was like a huge russian sedan so it's 
there's actually a surprising amount of room and you know like if you're looking for luggage space is he how tall are you though six seven that's not a lot of space for six seven men no i mean it was a fetal position and i had a big spoon alley but Ultimately, it wasn't that big of an issue. So did they just grab you and say, hey, we're kidnapping you? No, they stopped us on the road and, you know, had weapons or whatever and instructed us as, as to what was happening and what was going to go on. And, you know, we just were, we tried to explain what was going on and they didn't believe us. And so we didn't want to fight back because we didn't want to upset them. And really, it didn't take that long at all for the situation to be sorted out. What took a long time was that since they didn't want us to speak ill of them, and because they felt bad for kidnapping us, we had to drink a lot of vodka and toast each other's families and toast to each other's health. And they toast, we toasted to forgiveness and we toasted to friendship and we toasted to, you know, about a hundred different things. And then they, we all got in our cars and their cars and they drove us back and they dropped us off on the truck and away we went. So it was just another day at work, right? I mean, I was like just kidnapped for the afternoon, basically like the morning of the afternoon. Wow. You really lived. So when we talked earlier, we were going to start with humor because even in the darkest of times, you're the kind of guy that can make even a kidnapping story funny. So where did you cultivate this sense of humor? Yeah, I mean, the, the reality, right? My name is Stacy. I grew up in a hockey town and my mom made me figure skate. And I'm really tall and a pretty big dude now, but I was beanpole skinny. Right. I was just this super skinny kid. I had a really high voice. I had a, my head has been the same gigantic size since I was like six. Right. And so finally my body grew into the size of my head. So I, I wasn't very athletic. So I just learned to make people laugh. Right. And that didn't always work. You know, I mean, I had my fair share of swirlies and, and whatnot, hair washings in the toilet. For those of you who don't know what a swirly is. But, um, yeah, and so I think humor was my way to cope and, and get people on my side. And I come from a very funny family, and it's a very loud, talkative family. I mean, if you came over to our house for dinner, there's four people, you'd you know, five people at the table with you, and um, there's there would be five conversations happening at once. And uh, I remember I was dating this girl in college, and my parents were down to visit, and we all went out to eat. And we were driving back. My girlfriend and I were driving back from the dinner. And she said, your parents are so nice. They're so polite. And I thought to myself, they hate her. They don't like her because they were so nice to her. <laughs> and in my family, we show love by just ripping into each other and mocking one another and making fun of each other and laughing. And that's how my family shows love. And um, I mean, we're also a big hugging family and, and people talk about it. But so if you come over to the house for dinner and everyone's really polite, they don't like you. Stacey, you need to have a podcast. Your voice is so good. Thanks. Um, so funny thing about my voice too, this is also why I had to have a <laughs> sense of humor because my freshman year in high school, my voice was so high and I was in the, the Brookings High School choir and I sat, they sat me in the alto section. So I had to, I sang first alto wow. in high school. So yeah. finally when I was like 16 or 17, um, I hit puberty and uh, the voice started dropping and I sounded a lot less like Mickey Mouse. So a few years ago, Stacey, you came out with the movie Adventure Not War based on the project you started after serving in the military. So can you kind of catch us up to this point and tell us how you started this project and how you got involved in serving our country? Yeah, so I always wanted to be in the military. That's all I ever wanted to do when I was five years old. I remember telling my mom I wanted to be in the Navy like my granddad, her dad, who served in World War II. 
and I have this uh, amazing great aunt Mildred who's 99 years old and she's still alive and she was in the women's army corps and right. she was in Papua New Guinea and she was in the um, Pacific theater. And then she came home back to central Nebraska after the war and uh, then moved back to Tokyo for a year, moved back to Nebraska and then was looking around and she was like, nope, going back to Tokyo. So she spent about five total years in Tokyo in the forties and she's still, she's about six foot tall. She's 99 years old and she gets her hair dyed red once a week still. And she lives by herself now in a farmstead in central, south central Minnesota. And so between her and my grandpa and then I have a, my uncle Gail, um, just a lot of really amazing people who were doing really cool things in the world. And I wanted to be like them and they had all served. And so that meant I needed to serve. But I was too tall for the Navy. Ultimately, I, I didn't want to get my medical waivers in the Army. I had like a week to decide. And so I ended up in the Army. And I got recalled out of the Individual Ready Reserve. I served my first stint in the Army from 2000 to 2004, went to the Individual Ready Reserve, and then got recalled at the end of 2005. And so I was in Iraq from 2006 to 2007. So right before the surge of troops and then during the surge of troops. And uh, got out of the Army in 2007. And... You know, didn't really know what it was that I wanted to do. And so I ended up in graduate school. Um, I, I had a plan around urban design and city planning and wanting to help rebuild cities. And graduate school is fantastic, but I also spent a ton of time, you know, boozing pretty hard. And uh, I used most of my student loan money for tuition, for cocaine, and for rent. Yeah, there's a, there's a scene in the movie where you talk about uh, a game you played called Eight Ball on a Wall. Yeah, so, you know, I'm I'm 6'7", and when I got home from Iraq, the last time I weighed myself in Iraq, I weighed about 298 pounds. And I was a pretty big, beefy dude, lifted a lot of weights, spent a lot of time at the gym. And uh, when I came home, I ate a lot, right? Because, like, the food in Iraq wasn't great. The street food in Iraq was great. Like, the food that the Iraqis made and that I was able to eat often on patrol, I really enjoyed. But the food that we got in the dining facilities or DFAC was was crap, right? It was nutrient depleted. And sure, you could get steak sometimes and you could get like lobster sometimes, but it had been so heavily irradiated and packaged and everything. It wasn't, there wasn't a lot of nutrients. So I came home and probably the first month I was home, I ate a tuna steak every night for dinner and I would eat steak for lunch and I just ate and ate and ate. Um, there's a picture of me somewhere. I went on this big surfing trip actually when I came home in South Africa and there's a picture of me somewhere and I had rolled down my bodysuit and one of my moobs had flopped out <laughs> and it was ginormous. And the guy that I was surfing with, and I, I uh, snapped this picture and showed, you know, I was like, what that picture look like? And he showed it to me and I was like, oh my gosh. And this is just like, you know, I'm, I've been home for eight weeks at this point and I had just ballooned from 298 to whatever height or weight one needs to have fairly significant moobs. And I decided that I needed to make a change, but, um, so I was a pretty big guy and um, really, really enjoyed my cocaine and could, you know, ingest a significant amount of it more than other people. And so somehow it got started where I did most of an eight ball all at once and um, then just ran through a wall. And um, from then on, the folks who were there for that party, that would be like a fun party trick, right? Like get Stacy to do eight ball on a wall. And the nice thing is, is that when you're doing a party trick like that, it's it's kind of like if you're you know, uh, lighting shots of Sambuca off your head. If you're going to put set your head on fire, somebody else is typically going to pay for the alcohol. So it's kind of the same thing with the eight ball on a wall. So maybe it um, indicated some uh, latent dirtbag 
identity, right? That I was, uh, you know, you do anything for free gear, do anything for a couch to crash on, and you know, place to stay, camping spot, or anything else like that. So, just another opportunity for somebody else to pay for the drugs. But you're sober now, and you said when we talked, you found rock climbing. Yeah. So ultimately, I finished graduate school. I got out to Boulder, Colorado, and then uh, yeah, my buddy Chuck. Uh, took me out rock climbing, and I've talked a lot about this and, and written a lot about this, um, and it's still pretty impressive. I mean, Chuck basically told me to put off suicide or re- rejoining the Army for a couple weeks and got me out rock climbing. So and, let's back up. So, so Stacey, you, you were going to either rejoin the Army or you are going to commit suicide, and your friend's like, no, wait, I'm going to take you rock climbing? Well, he wasn't even so much as saying, no, wait. He was just like, well, like, I don't know. He, he, he said, look, you got to do something about it you know, make a plan and let's figure this out. And, uh, like give me a couple of weeks and this is when I have time off from work. And he was living in Colorado Springs, still lives in Colorado Springs and said, you know, I can drive up to Boulder and take you climbing. And, um, good friend. I, uh, he's a great friend. And, um, I don't talk to him enough. Uh, but yeah, just a phenomenal, phenomenal guy. And one of the really nice things about it. And I think one of the things that's so important in the outdoor industry is a lot. There are some people who will go out and do something just because they want to do it. Right. But it's easier if you go out and do something and want to go out and do something because you've seen somebody else who looks like you go out and do that, right? And Chuck is a big, tall, lanky dude, right? He's six foot eight, um, big guy. And so I was like, well, tall guys can't climb. Chuck's like, bullshit. I'm a tall guy and I can climb. And um, so he was like, find some shoes. You know, he, he, he set me a task, right? And he set me a task with an objective and I had to do it. And um, yeah, getting out on that rock, wall with chuck and it's like the first flat iron right and that's like what five 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 six but it's a really really slabby climb and it's for, a it's for a, those who aren't rock climbers five 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 six what's that mean uh five 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 six means it's it's like a beginning to low moderate climb okay. right and so a fall could be catastrophic but the likeliness of a fall is not high um but it's really slabby meaning there's not like good grips to, to mm-hmm. hold on to so it's like smashing your hand into the rock and then smearing your foot off in some other way and moving up. So, yeah. And so, you know, I, I, so it was safe to go out with him, but I was, I was super scared the whole time. Um, and really, really nervous. And I would always yell falling, even if I wasn't falling just cause I <laughs> wanted the rope to be tight. And, um, but it was amazing. And, and that first climb, you know, really, when you climb, it pulls you into the moment, right? I mean, when you're, I mean, like surfing, like fly fishing, like skiing a really good line, um, like, you know, horseback riding or hunting can do that. I mean, there's lots of, lots of different things, but pretty much all of those are the outdoors. Um, you know, for me, it would be like the outdoors, amazing music and amazing art. Those are the three things that really pull you into the moment. But when you're hella depressed, it's a hard time to look at art and see how beautiful it is or, you know, really listen to, you know, I, I don't know for music to pull me into that moment or out of that moment. But, um, so for me it was the outdoors and I think for, and I think anybody, um, can have that experience in the outdoors. It doesn't have to be climbing. doesn't have to be surfing. Tell me more part. about what climbing does for you. This is so awesome. Yeah. I mean, what climbing does for me. And I think now, you know, I, I don't climb near as much as I used to. Um, but I spent a lot of time skiing and rafting as well. And, um, but what climbing did for me is it, it centered me in the moment, right? And uh, it brought me into that moment in a way that I wasn't guilty about the fact that I had a future 
or fearful that my past would catch up to me. And that's what climbing did because it was just that. And there's something, you know, really meta about being roped into somebody else. And it's, I don't know if it's kind of a, an umbilical sensation that takes us almost all the way back to the womb and helps you have somebody else who's helping you move through um, this really challenging situation. And you're out there and you can feel the rock and you can hear the winds and you can, you know, there are places, obviously I've climbed above highways for really aesthetic, beautiful lines, but when you're really out and it's quiet and you can feel the rock and everything, it's just, I don't know, it's really primal, right? It's just, that's what our bodies are meant to do. Our bodies are meant to climb. They're meant to surf. They're designed to do these things and you're actually using your body for what it's designed to do like our bodies aren't designed to sit down and type all day no so so your story is really interesting because you you had a choice i mean you could have just kept using drugs you could have just kind of gone into a deeper darker hole you went climbing but then you didn't just go climbing and say okay i'm gonna climb and get a job you kind of like made it your life's mission to go help others not only climb but go back. Yeah. I mean, I knew then, right. I mean, I, I, I still sometimes wonder, right. Like what would have happened had instead of coming home and going to grad school, uh, I would have come home and been a raft guide and a ski bum, but I didn't even know that that was something that I could do. Right. I didn't know anybody who had done that. I didn't know how to do that. And, um, there wasn't a pathway. I didn't feel like there was a pathway that was for other people. And I didn't know any of those other people. And so by the time I started climbing, I was, you know, I had over $100,000 in student loan debt. And so I didn't really have an opportunity just to live out of the back of my Subaru. I joked that when I moved to Boulder, I grew a beard and bought a Subaru so nobody would know that, you know, maybe I leaned a little bit right politically and, uh, uh, and, and fit in, right? I knew how to do counterinsurgency operations and fit into a group. So that's what I did. And um, it... But I, I just knew if this was so good for me and there weren't a lot of other opportunities at the time for veterans to gather in a veteran majority space outside of larger expeditions or base camps, right? Outward Bound for Veterans was doing really great stuff. Um, we, Nick Watson and I launched Veterans Expeditions about the same time that uh, No Barriers Warriors launched its larger program that was that is still focused and for very good reason on um, veterans who have, you know, a significant physical disability because of the war. Uh, But Nick and I looked at it and we thought some of those other niches have been filled, but there's 2.5 million veterans in America. There are a lot of veterans who maybe they don't necessarily have trauma, but they've lived an institutionalized life for a while and they came out, and it's hard to figure out what to do after you live that institutionalized life. There's a Merle Haggard talks about uh, getting out of prison and all of a sudden not knowing what to do and realizing that at some sense he had a sense of understanding and purpose for what he was supposed to do in prison. He knew when he was going to eat. He knew how he fit into the system, and now all of a sudden he's let out, and he doesn't know where he fits in the world. And that's an institutionalized system, right? And the military is the same way, even though it's not prison and we chose to go there, volunteered to go there. So it's nice every once in a while to get together as a group of veterans and go do something and challenge each other and help each other to achieve a goal. And the hope is, is that those skills and that self-confidence translates 
into your everyday life, right? And, and for us, one of the other things, and one of the things that we did a lot at Sierra Club Outdoors, is we partnered with really amazing guide companies, Montana Alpine Guides, uh, Oars for Rafting, uh, Beartooth Powder Guides in Montana. I, I know I'm leaving out several amazing, amazing people we worked with, the Colorado Wilderness Rides and Guides. And what would end up happening, right, is that the veterans for the first time, oftentimes, would get to meet a non-veteran in a way that, that was an immediate trust builder. Mm. Because the non-veteran, you know, the technical guide was showing them how to rock climb, how to make it through a class four rapid, um, how to ski a really technical slope. And time outside just breaks these barriers down, right? No, I mean, it does. I taught teach surfing once a year to, to a group of veterans. And it's like, one, it's the best week of my life. But two, it's like we're connected in such a deep way so quickly that we would never be connected if we had met at a bar. Right. Well, and that's the thing, right? You don't, when, when you see somebody stand up for the first time, right? Even if they just get up on their knees for the first time and feel the surf go, or even if they fall down all afternoon and have a, you know, and you're like, Hey man, you're so close. Or Hey lady, you're, you're really crushing it. Oh man. And, and you talk about how cool it was and you're like, Oh, it was so close and everything. And you talk about what a great feeling and it felt so awesome. And in that whole conversation, you're never like, and Oh, by the way, are you gay? And uh, what's your political <laughs> affiliation? And tell no. me about your beliefs in God. And tell me how tell me how your belief system in God, you know, structures your daily life. And uh, it's like you're you're just out there and you're like surfing, climbing, skiing, sunshine, wind, cold, whatever. And and that binds you together. And you talk about these really deeper, more profound truths. And what happens? I guarantee you, what happens with the veterans you work with is they they met you. And they're like later on, they might be in a situation where they're really nervous or freaking out or they've been triggered by trauma or whatever. And they're in a room. They're like, nobody here understands me. And then they're like, wait, you know what? Remember that one time I went surfing with Shelby? She wasn't a veteran, but she was really rad and she was super cool. And if I met her, maybe there's somebody else in the room that's also a surfer. So maybe I'll start talking about surfing. And, it's, and, it, and so it creates that link and it creates that confidence and it creates that bridge and and that's what's so powerful about the outdoors and it's not just with veterans right I mean that's the one thing that I've been really thankful to learn throughout the last 10 years is that um, veterans don't own trauma how we got our trauma compared to the, the broad majority of America 98% of America might be really unique that we have trauma isn't and I think we have a duty as veterans to help other people connect to the outdoors and safe exciting ways to help them with whatever it is that they're dealing with. Because I mean, you know, you and I have a mutual friend who suffered horrific sexual child abuse. I have a really hard time understanding that trauma, but I want to try and empathize and imagine how painful that was so that I can try and relate with him and support him in his continued journey through life. But the outdoors saved us both. So, even though he didn't serve and I didn't serve, one of the things that has linked us together is this common understanding that we both had trauma and how do we help each other continue to move forward with our lives so that the trauma doesn't define us. That we, um, the new organization, I'm you know, working for the Phoenix now, which um, is a sober multi-sport community, and their tagline is rise, recover, live. Rise, recover, live. And when I look back at the successful days that I've had over the last eight, nine, 10 years, it's when I've been able to wake up in the morning, stand up and go out and live. And when you fall down, you don't have to go back to the starting point. You rise, you recover, you live. 
And through different years, that's going to look different from year to year. But that's really kind of become my mantra. Rise, recover, live. Rise, recover, live. And that's goes so much beyond sobriety. It goes so much beyond veterans. It goes so much beyond abuse survivors. Life is just fucking hard. Yep. And if we can just keep rising, recovering, and living, and helping other people to do the same. Stacy, you've dropped so many gems of wisdom on this podcast. Thank you. I'm pretty much in awe. Thank you for serving our country and really just doing what you do. So how did you get the wild idea to use the outdoors to help veterans? Yeah, so I, I mean, I think my wild, my wild idea, uh, yeah, I mean, is that the outdoors can save all of us. And beyond that, that outdoor adventure can actually build peace between countries, right? Like, so kind of thinking about, well, man, I know, I know how good the outdoors is for me. And um, I just grew up in a family sit- setting where if you, if you knew you had something good, you tried to share that with other people. Um, that doesn't always, you know, relate to like chocolate chip cookies or whatever. Both my brother and I still kind of <laughs> hoard those, but like, you know, we grew up in a casserole side of, type of family, right? So you yeah. make a delicious tater tot hot dish and you share it with everybody, you know? So I guess in some ways climbing in the outdoors, it was like discovering this, uh, giant, beautiful tater tot hot dish. And I wanted everybody to have a piece, have a bite. And, um, so from that, you know, that led to this idea of, well, how do we get other people out here? And then, well, what are the systems that need to change? to get more people out here and how do we start working on that? And one of the things that led to was this understanding that people wanted evidence-based research, right? And so a lot of people talk about, well, why are we trying to quantify the effects of the outdoors? Well, you can quantify the effects of the outdoors without taking away the mystery and the beauty and the awe, but you have to at some level, I'd love everybody just to understand the mystique and the beauty of it just through getting outside, but we have systems that prevent a lot of people from doing that. Um, and so then I wanted to figure out, well, how do we start changing those systems? And, um, through my work at the Sierra club and, uh, I realized that more and more people needed to see this and more and more people needed to do this. But even beyond all that, I kept meeting people like you and others who had the same story. The outdoors changed my life. The outdoors transformed my life. And it could be, you know, a fly fisher woman, it could be a surfer, it could be a climber, it could be a skier, it could be a hunter. And there's all these points of connection, even though how we pursue the outdoors might be really different. And then I began thinking several years ago, even when I was Iraq, I had this inkling of a thought when I was stationed there, what would it be like to come back here as a tourist? What would it like to be? And then, you know, I became this, uh, um, climber and a skier. Cause you knew Iraq just from like serving just, and just from serving in Iraq and, and trucks. And yeah. And I had, um, not in tanks. I don't fit in tanks. I, Sorry. Yeah, no, that's all right. <laughs> tanks are tiny. Although I, I do know a tanker that was my size. And, and people like, you can even talk to some of my uh, service members who will tell you how much I hated getting in the Humvees to drive around. I, I would rather walk everywhere. It was just way more comfortable, a lot easier. You got to meet the people. You got to see the country. You got to get to know the city. And, um, and, I, and I worked with these two guys who were Kurdish, and they were telling me about the mountains and how beautiful it was. And I thought, man, I really want to go up and see that. And, um, then over time, I, you know, I knew how good the outdoors was for me. And then I started thinking I need to rewrite my ending. I didn't get to leave Iraq the way I wanted to leave Iraq. Um, I wanted to, and you know, I, I felt like I was pulled out of there too soon. I felt like I had to leave behind my friends and leave behind my mission and leave behind what I was doing, not just my friends in the United States army and the United States military, but also the Iraqi people that I had met, right? Just really amazing people who just like in any community in this country right now, they're most of the people are trying to wake up and live a good life and 
make sure their kids, if they have them, are taken care of and the people they love are taken care of. And then there's a lot of people working really hard to make their community better. And we might have different visions for what that looks like, but that's what people are trying to do. And in Iraq, in South Dakota, in Mississippi, in La Jolla, California. And so I thought, well, is there a way I can go back and rewrite the ending? And if the outdoors is so good for me personally, what can we do if we take it to kind of this um, national, international level? And that's where this idea that if, if, if climbing and skiing can save my life, can climbing and skiing save or preserve or build some larger level of global peace? And I think the answer is yes. So when you went back to the Middle East and you took a group of people and you guys skied right. these hilarious runs and it just right. looked so fun. Ryan Van Duzer, mm-hmm. a friend of yours, uh, who I saw yesterday at the trade show, said, you know, maybe ask Stacy, like, I think something you told your wife before you went was, I want to go so I can feel like I came home. Do you feel like you came home? Totally. I mean, I feel, I, I, I feel like I'm most of the way home. Right. I mean, there's this, there's a, the project for adventure, not war. It's actually not a nonprofit. It's just a webpage and an okay. idea. And we, we work to support other nonprofits that are working in the regions where we went. So in Angola, we worked to raise additional funds for the Honold foundation. And we did a solar installation, uh, solar installation project, a demonstration project. And then we also raised some funds for the halo trust, which does landmine clearance in Iraq. We partnered with Zach Bazi and tent education, which provides, um, high need, uh, relatively low cost impact for refugee education, right? Because that's one of the ways that we're going to battle extremism is make sure that anybody who's in a refugee camp, if, if we're giving them a positive education, they're going to be a lot less susceptible to a negative, you know, negative influence. But yeah, I mean, I set this up in many ways to go to go back so I could come home so that I could rewrite my own history so that I could put in parallel with a lot of the negative as well as some of the positive memories of war that I could hopefully put in parallel, just really amazing, amazing memories. And um, now I have that, right? I think both um, some of my absolute lowest points in life are in Iraq, happened in Iraq, and one of the greatest days of my life. And and um, I said it in the film, and it's really true. It's that probably the third greatest day in my life is uh, skiing, you know, hitting the summit of Mount Halgard and skiing down it. And uh, the only two days that beat that are, you know, the day I met my wife and the day I went, met my daughter. And um, so, yeah, I think I'm more complete. I think I'm more whole. Um, what's the, people talk about the, the, there's a Japanese art form, right, where they, when the ceramic breaks, they fill it in with gold. Mm. And um, I'm the, the name of that escapes me. But that's, I guess, kind of what it felt like maybe metaphorically is coming back and, and finding some of those pieces or filling in some of those gaps with gold. And it doesn't mean that there isn't a scar there. It doesn't mean that I don't miss Brian and Shane and Nathan and Daniel. It just means that I've been able to use that break, hopefully to create something more beautiful and to expand my own ability to be a better father, a better husband, a better partner, a better citizen, a better teammate. And, um, yeah, I, you know, I had, set out five countries that I wanted to go to. Um, and I kind of thought in my mind, you know, each one would fill up or complete, you know, 20%, right? hundred, you know, if, if I'm a whole person and split that into five parts, but, um, Iraq ended up, and I didn't realize this when I went, but Iraq ended up being a much more significant part of my life that I needed to put back together. And I'm 
really, really glad we went. And I'm really excited that there were brands and, and the people at the brands who believed in us and um, that I have a partner who pushed me to go do that in my wife and Mackenzie and, um, you know, uh, and, and friend. I mean, you know, you go on those trips and there's, you see three or four of us in the movie, but there's a team of about between all the brands and all the friends and all the supporters in the family. Um, you know, I bet there are 350, 400 people who had some role in making that trip happen. But you really made that trip happen from the start. I mean, any advice to those who want to start a movement, create community and bring positive change because you're doing it. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, for, for people who want to really get out there and get after it, I think there's a couple things, um, you know, advice that I would give. The first is um, you don't necessarily have to start your own organization. Uh, maybe it's just a movement or a trip or an inspiration or whatever, um, but see if there's somebody else doing something that along the lines of what you want to do um, and get involved there. And the second is, is that even in those organizations, you can be an entrepreneur, Right? You don't have to always start your own thing to be an entrepreneur. You can act entrepreneurial. Um, you can take an idea and run with it. And I'll be forever thankful that the Sierra Club gave me an opportunity. And when I got promoted to be the director of Sierra Club Outdoors, I gave them a vision of what I wanted to do. And they said, great, go do it. And for the last five and a half years, you know, phenomenal teamwork there as well. Uh, and building that vision with the team and we've been able to go out and, and not accomplish everything but get a lot of things done and um, I feel really similar about the opportunity that's in front of me now with the Phoenix and that it's an organization it's a vision that I believe in um, and they're saying all right let's get together and let's go do it and um, but then there are also times where you might have to create the world that you want to live in you might have to if, if you have a vision and nobody's doing it you've got to create that community and you've got to build that community. And I think you do it by, um, nobody can outwork you. That's all on you. Um, nobody can outwork you, but then also allow other people to help you allow other people to share that vision, allow other people to shape that vision. And, um, I, I'm a firm believer that dreams, I don't know where our first dreams come from, but I know that as we start moving and seeing and acting in the world, I think our dreams are an output of what we do. And so it's a, as we're moving forward, it's like almost an exhaustive dreams are coming back, right? And as you continue to move, those dreams will influence the directions you're moving, but it's okay for dreams to change. It's okay to decide that you don't wanna continue to pursue a dream. It's okay to fail in a dream. It's okay to decide, you know what? I'm going to quit heading in this direction and change in that direction. And I mean, so the advice would be certainly commit to an idea, commit to your vision, commit to a dream. It doesn't have to be your vocation. It does, you know, maybe it is your vocation, but maybe your vocation allows you to do it as your avocation. Maybe you have enough resources or can find ways to, where you don't have to work for a while and you can just pursue that passion. It's okay when that passion changes. And I think that's the one thing I would tell anybody who really wants to change the world is yes, you can change the world without a doubt, hundred percent do it, change the world. How can we support? But how you want to change the world might change year over year. And that's okay. Don't feel too bad about that. How do you deal with fear and failure? Because those are two emotions that I think a lot of people struggle with, especially when doing something big and, and, you know, dealing with something hard, like coming back from war or having trauma. Yeah. So we got the trip, 
you know, so I think a lot of people who are going to see this, hopefully everybody goes out and sees this film, right? And, um, and everybody should listen to this podcast and all the amazing people that, you know, you brought on. And I think part, part of dealing with fear is listening to how other people deal with, deal with fear and failure and, and reading and realizing that it's really common to fail and it's really common to be afraid of failure. Um, I've had opportunities to spend time with just world-class amazing athletes. And one of the things that seems really common is that note, that self-doubt. Um, what are we doing in it? And at some level, I think that fuels you to work harder. Um, I think the other thing that can be really helpful is actually when you fail, realizing, you know, if the failure doesn't kill you, you're able to stand up and keep moving or find other ways to keep moving. And so I think kind of the more you fail, in some ways, the easier it is to fail in the future, right? I mean, it's a, just like anything, the more you do it, uh, yeah. the better you get at it. And, um, yeah, I, I don't necessarily always deal with it well. You know, the Ski Iraq film, we got funded 11 days before we were supposed to fly. We bought our tickets 11 or 12 days, I think, before our departure date. And thankfully, there were a lot of people who really believed in what we were doing and our mission. And, um, and that's, I think, what it was. But, and then that trip came off not necessarily without a hitch but it was actually the easiest expedition i'd have ever been on because everybody was so bought into what we were trying to do but i talked with a lot of people i'm sure if you spend time with some of my other friends and my family and my partner they'll tell you that i'm a nervous wreck a lot of the time but you're also so sensitive so it's really incredible if you you look at stacy he's a six seven larger than life character but you're so sensitive It, it doesn't seem like you're afraid to kind of go to the sensitive side well, I think that's, you know, first of all, I think it's because my name is Stacy and uh, I got made fun of a lot as a kid. No, I'm kidding. Um, but yeah, I just, I was talking about this with um, my good buddy, Patty O'Connell the other day, who's also a really big guy, right? And we were talking about almost wondering if there isn't something about being so physically big that allows us to be really vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's an old Saturday Night Live or Jack Handy quote that it takes a big man to cry. It takes a bigger man to laugh at the man who's mm-hmm. crying. And there's not a lot of bigger people than me, so it's okay <laughs> to cry because who's, who's going to come laugh at me? But, I mean, that's that's a tribute. You know, I'm able to be this way and be who I am because of my friends and family who, um, you know, I think when I realized, when I finally realized that many hands make the task easier and that um, if I shared my troubles with others, they would help lift those up and carry them away as long as I was there to when I could to help lift their troubles up and carry it away. So I very much believe in a, in a community and team approach to that. And it allows me to be fully who I am. Stacy, this has been such a pleasure. We're going to go to the quick and dirty round. All right. But first a word from our sponsor. This episode was brought to you by REI Co-op, a brand who not only gets you the gear you need to get outside, but helps you get out there and explore. Anytime I've had a big adventure, whether it was volunteering in Costa Rica, even hiking in Yosemite, I've loaded up on gear at REI. I've always loved their inclusive approach and the fact the brand provides tons of education on and off the storefront floors. I've taken lots of classes at REI like orienteering, rock climbing techniques, even beginning backpacking. They also have great experiences and trips like safaris to Tanzania, trekking in the Alps, backpacking trips through the Great Smoky Mountains, and so many more. I've been a member since 1996, and I'm excited to partner with them on the show this year. You can go to REI.com to 
check out the latest gear, classes, experiences, to find a store near you, and to read great stories about adventure and the outdoors. Welcome to the Quick and Dirty Round. So what are you doing now? What I'm doing next is I... I'm working as the National Director of Programming for the Phoenix, so people can check out that work at thephoenix.org. Um, the guy who founded the Phoenix, Scott Strode, has been in my life uh, for about eight years. So when we started Veterans Expeditions in Boulder, the individual who designed our logo is a guy named Ted Church. Ted Church put me in touch with Scott Strode and also Brad Luden from First Descents. Mm. Scott helped me um, with the Phoenix when he was at the Phoenix, um, helped me design Veterans Expeditions. And then a couple of years later, when I decided to get sober, I called Ted, who put me in touch with Scott, and Scott helped me get sober. And unfortunately, in our country right now, there is an incredibly high demand for opportunities for people to connect in safe spaces to try out sobriety, to be sober, and to build on their identity as somebody in sobriety or in recovery, um, to be more than just another drunk or just, an, you know, and, and trying to erase the stigma around those addictions. And so that's what we're going to be doing with the Phoenix is helping other communities across the country um, help people who want to get sober and stay sober, get sober and stay sober through exercise and outdoor activity. So Love I'm super that. stoked to, to get back and, and work full time in that community. That's a, that's a topic really near and dear to my heart. My family works in recovery and good for you. Thanks. Um, what are some of the funny things that happen on your trips? I mean, I saw the Vice documentary as well with Alex Honnold where you guys go climb in Angola. Looks like some funny things happened there, but any just like comedic unexpected moments that you can just give us a little glimpse on to some of these trips. Yeah, I mean, the people that you meet on these trips, right? Like, so the funniest person that we met on this trip was this hilarious guy named Karzan, and he was our driver through most of Iraq, and he didn't speak any English, right? And he was hilarious. Like, if you can imagine a slimmed-down, more chic Iraqi Chris Farley, this awesome. is Karzan, who's our driver, right? And so things like, so we're working with Max Lowe and Mac Fisher, were our videographers and just phenomenal directors, and working with Stepped was just really, really amazing and the whole team, but so we're in Iraq, everybody's like really nervous because the day that we land, um, the government of Iraq and backed by the United States go into Mosul to knock out the main vestiges of ISIS. And Mosul's like 40 kilometers away from where we are, right? So things are a little bit tense. Karzan doesn't know us from anybody, right? We're driving, he quickly senses that this is a group he might be able to have a little bit of fun with. Max and Mac get out for some sort of like, they, they need to film something or they want to look at something and they start walking back towards the car and Karzan, keep in mind, we've been in country for like six hours and Karzan just starts driving the car <laughs> away, leaving Max and Mac like stranded on the roadside in Iraq. And it was just that moment. And then like Karzan slams on the brakes and starts laughing and we're all laughing and we're like, what? This is just going to be such a great trip, right? <laughs> because these guys just like, I mean, we just fit in, they just fit in with us and they, we, they, they open themselves up. And so there's just moments like that that are just hilariously funny moments like all throughout. And, um, yeah, like Angola and Alex, I mean, Alex hit his head. I, I don't, I mean, there's just, yeah, it's hard to like think of these funny moments right off the top of my head. But, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know, like eating shit, skiing down a relatively non-difficult couloir in Iraq, right? Like just this really mellow, gentle kind of. I mean, I don't even know if we should be calling it a cooler. Um, and we all ate shit and like hammered our faces in the snow and came up. And I, yeah, I mean, these trips are, you know, there's some really heavy stuff that happens in these trips, but 
it, it's pretty much nonstop laughter. What are your morning routines? You're such a highly effective individual. You do so much. You're involved with so many different groups. Like, what do you do to, to stay so productive? It's amazing how much time you have in the day when you're sober. And that's one of the hardest parts about being, becoming sober is all of a sudden you're like, what do I do with all this time? Yeah, all my friends who are sober tell me that. Yeah, I'm like, oh my gosh, there's so much time. I mean, typically, you know, wake up between 5.30 and 6.45, depending on when uh, my little girl wakes up. Uh, and then my morning routine pretty much now involves, you know, it, if, if I wake up before she wakes up, then I'm able to make coffee and take out the trash and read a little bit of headlines and scoop the kitty litter, uh, empty the dishes. Uh, or if she's up, I kind of do those things with her. Or we read books and we play. And that's um, that's really my special time uh, during the day. I look forward to the mornings because I get to play with my daughter and give my wife a break and, and let her take care of herself for a little while. And um, that's how I start my day. Every every day that I can start my, my day with my little girl. And the occasional Dawn Patrol um, but, um, I travel a lot, so I try to be there for the mornings with my little girl. Cause that's just the most special, amazing time. How and, old is she? Yeah. She's about two years old and she's huge. Awesome. We call her baby Yeti and, uh, <laughs> baby she, Yeti. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. And I actually, this is my second Chris Farley reference. I never really believed in reincarnation until I met my daughter and I thought there's a really good chance. This is Chris Farley has come back to live with us here. I mean, she's just a hilarious person who just shrieks with laughter and very physical, like already understands physical humor, you know, which is like, tr like that's you're amazing. not even two years old. I just sound like such a rad dad to hang out with. Yeah. I mean, I just have the most amazing partner uh, in Mackenzie and thankfully she's my wife and she supports and we do a lot of this stuff together and um, have a shared vision and, and also have a lot of our own things that we do and, and create a lot of independence for one another. And I think that's really important for our relationship anyway. That's important for all relationships. Yeah. yeah. Wifey sounds like a badass. She's total badass. So you do travel a lot and you're in these kind of crazy remote places. Any like gear must haves or travel hacks you can share? Uh, yeah. So, um, I mean, I, the Kindle for me has revolutionized mountaineering and alpinism and big ski trips because I, I love to read. And I don't have to choose between books. So, I mean, I, I love the Kindle, so, but um, the Kindle, a headlamp, uh, a notebook, and a pen, right? Just so that you can write and draw and scribble and all that and then read books. Uh, in terms of actual gear, yeah, I mean, uh, my Melizana hoodie. It's like my mom giving me a warm hug when I was seven years old and eating chocolate chip cookies out in the wild. I just love putting that thing on. Oh, that's epic. I want to go get one of those. So what books on your Kindle are you reading? So when I'm not traveling, I actually read paperback books because I don't want my daughter seeing me staring at a screen. Um, but Good for you. I'm reading, I'm actually making it through The Snow Leopard for the very first time. Never read The Snow Leopard by Peter Matheson. Uh, just a phenomenal book. Um, and I'm also reading Lonesome Dove, Larry McMurtry, about Texas. Um, classic American literature. Um, really represents the American West. And then uh, the books that I would recommend to people right now, who you know, um, I was talking to a buddy the other day and the, Open Midnight by Brooke Williams mm. uh, is a phenomenal book looking at history and time and place and our own role in it. And then uh, Abstract Wild by Jack Turner. I think for anybody who's trying to figure out where do we go with public lands, where do we go, how do we think about nature, how do we think about the wild, Abstract Wild by Jack Turner needs to be at the top of your list. Awesome. I was just going to ask you any advice to those. I know you do a lot of environmental work with the Sierra Club. Like The administration right now, it, it's pretty challenging times right now. What can we do? 
to get more involved, more active in the environment and to help veterans. Yeah, I mean, call you, you know, call your representatives. That does make an impact. Um, I have my representatives and senators' numbers. Both state representatives and, and federal representatives are in my favorites on my phone. Um, call them, ask for opportunities to connect and meet. Share with them what's important to you. Um, tell them, you know, um, you can volunteer uh, with um, a number of different organizations that are out there. Sierra Club, the Wilderness Society. Uh, you can volunteer at the VFW, the American Legion, if you really want to help f- figure out your veterans' home. Um, where there's a lot of uh, older veterans and maybe they don't have family coming to visit and go connect with them and get to know them, take them outdoors. I think the biggest thing that people can do to help veterans, though, is to exercise your rights. If that's not only what we fought for, then you need to go out and use those. You need to vote. You need to use your public lands. You need to make your voice heard. Uh, Those are the things. That's the best way you can thank a veteran is, Mm -hmm. is to exercise those rights that we fought for. I'm lucky enough to live in Salt Lake City, and I'm lucky enough to have a personal relationship with a guy named Peter Metcalf, who's the CEO and founder of Black Diamond, and just a phenomenal individual. And we met for coffee the other day, and we were talking about the path forward and what do we do. And he said, you know, Stacy, you've got to wake up every morning, and you have to decide. And I think he was quoting somebody else. And he said, you've got to decide what you're going to do that day. Are you going to savor the earth, or are you going to try and save the earth? And I think that's a really good point, and you have to find that balance. You can't spend 100% of your time savoring the earth, but you can't spend 100% of your time saving the earth. Because if you don't get out, like, I mean, Warren Miller just passed away this week, right? And uh, what do you say? If you don't do it this year, you're just going to be one year older when you finally do. And um, you've got to enjoy life. You've got to taste it. And you've got to get out in it. Because otherwise, the bastards win. But at the same time, you've got to work to help create the systemic necessary systemic and structural changes that is going to ensure that every American, everybody on this earth, regardless of what they look like, regardless of their political beliefs, their religious beliefs, their sexual background, their gender identity, that they have an opportunity and that they feel welcome getting outdoors, connecting to nature, whoever they are, in whatever way that they're doing, as long as it continues to be safe um, and, and, you know, and not depleting of the environment. Because even in outdoor rec, right, we, we can be an extractive industry if we're not careful. Um, but yeah, the best way to help get involved, get out there, breathe deep, find the beauty where you are locally. Stacy, I can tell you're really well read. So who are your mentors? Yeah. So I was lucky enough when I came home to meet, uh, David Gouverneur and Oscar Gower, who are two amazing Venezuelan born, uh, designers who took me under their wing and, um, really worked with me. And then, um, Cindy Williams, who's the, the head of Olin design group also was incredible in my life. But then in the outdoor industry, um, the people who have had some of the biggest impact, you know, Ann Kirchick from the North Face, Conrad Anker, uh, Deanne Buck from Camber Outdoors, who really helped me in, Nora Stoll, who's now at Gore, and Mona West, who um, when I met her was at Cascade Designs, um, and then also Kate Ketchak, who does uh, PR, and just people who believed in my story and helped open doors and connect me and have continued to be there for me. And then, you know, other folks, um, other rabble rousers like Chris Rutgers and Rue Map and uh, Jose Gonzalez, Scott McGuire um, are folks who've, who've made a huge, huge impact. But uh, it was really awesome. We're doing this at the outdoor industry uh, trade show, first trade show in Denver. Uh, Luis Benitez is doing a great job. But um, I mean, I think, you know, the mentor who's been my North Star through a lot of this has been uh, Ann Kirchick and has just been a, a, f- a phenomenal friend and phenomenal mentor and uh, really helped push me and guide me and has never said that the ideas that I've had or what I want to do is crazy. 
she's just sat down and said, let's make a plan. And Anne, for those of you who don't know, just won the Lifetime Achievement Award at the Outdoor Retailer Show. She's with the North Face. She was a climber, and she said, I, don't, I didn't know her, but I actually almost cried when she accepted her speech. Um, she made a lot of pathways, not only for climbers, but for women in the industry. So Yeah, and not just for women, because uh, this big six-foot-seven <laughs> behemoth of a man has fallen behind a lot of paths that a lot of amazing women, to include folks like uh, Lynn Hill and uh, Steph Davis, have created for us to follow through. How can we get involved in what you're doing? So people can get involved. You know, obviously we'd love for folks to follow us on Facebook, Adventure Not War, or Instagram. They can follow me at Stacey A. Bear, which is more or less the, the Adventure Not War account. Um, people can donate to 10ed uh, if they look at 10ed.com. And really, I think the easiest way for people to get involved with the Phoenix, we're always looking for volunteers. So look at thephoenix.org for that. Um, but really, I think the best way for people to get involved is uh, practice a little bit more kindness in your day. Um, spend some time face-to-face with your neighbors and uh, get out and enjoy the world around you, whether you're living in Wichita, Kansas, or San Diego, California, Toledo, Ohio, New York City. Recognize and spend some time to find the beauty in your everyday. Stacey, this was awesome. Thanks, I had a really good time. This is amazing. Stacey, thank you so much for coming on this show and sharing your wild ideas Ann Kerchik, thank you for your service, for being a badass, a mentor to Stacy and to all of us, for paving the way for women and men in the outdoors. Ann recently passed away after receiving the Lifetime Achievement Award. She really was one badass female, so we're honored to dedicate this podcast to you. To those of you listening, thank you so much. We'll have links on where to find more of Stacy and how to get involved and what he's up to in the show notes of this podcast on wildideasworthliving.com. Thank you to REI for being such an epic partner and sponsor of this show. Check them out for the gear you need to go on adventures and to take classes. Just go to REI.com. And to those of you who are writing reviews on iTunes, there's some epic ones coming in. Ashley Lee will just read the end. Thanks, Shelby, for making me too inspired and wanting to drop out of college to pursue my wild ideas. Ashley or Ash, do not drop out of college. Use this podcast at your own risk. But I'm stoked that you're liking this podcast. Don't miss it. Jetson123, I love this podcast. And then she says, this podcast brings me out of my day-to-day suburban working mom life and reminds me of where I can still go. Thanks for giving me Something to look forward to during my commutes and reminding me there's so many good people out there doing awesome things. P.S. I love your crude sense of humor. Well, thank you, Jetson123. Wherever you're listening to this podcast, thank you so much. We love your support. Keep writing reviews, providing feedback, comment on the show in the show notes on the website. And wherever you're listening, don't forget, some of the best adventures often happen when you follow your wildest ideas. We'll see you next week. Thank you.